Manhattan is the eighth film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1979. Woody Allen stars as Isaac, and we follow him as he romanticizes the hell out of New York City, falling in love and dealing with the poetry of everyday life. His story is divided by several women and one friend, and he's made a decision to live a better life if there's such a thing. What do you say about Manhattan? It's a masterpiece. And where Allen's skill as a director finally matches his skill as a writer, it's a triumph of production with a story that lays out everything Allen has been trying to say. Oh, and it's my favorite film of all time. This week, episode 17, we talk about 1979's Manhattan. I will try not to go too overboard with how great it is, but we will look at how it was conceived, how it was made, and how the bastards are wrong about it. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. An idea for a short story about、um, people in Manhattan who、uh, are constantly creating these real、uh, unnecessary neurotic problems for themselves, because it keeps them from dealing with more unsolvable, terrifying problems about、uh, the universe. The thing that is sometimes forgotten when talking about Manhattan is that when the film came out, the words Woody Allen and New York were not yet synonymous. He had only made one film exclusively in New York. He was a famous resident, sure, but he was not quite Woody Allen the New Yorker as the world knew him. He would go on to make a couple of dozen films that paid tribute to New York, and this was just the second. Manhattan cemented Allen's reputation as a filmmaker two years after the triumph of Annie Hall, but it also cemented his reputation as Mr. New York City. In the eyes of the world, the two would be forever intertwined. When 9/11 happened, Alan got more calls for interviews to talk about that than any of his films. When the world wanted to hear from New York, they wanted to hear from Woody Allen. Alan grew up in Brooklyn and dreamt of moving to Manhattan. It was the Manhattan he saw at the cinema in glamorous films. But I think it's also Woody's nature that he doesn't like to travel. He likes the city, and he likes the information overload of a big melting pot. Like he famously said himself, he's two with nature. As he became successful, his dreams came true. He got to live in Manhattan in an apartment overlooking Central Park, go to exclusive gallery openings, eat in great restaurants, and take in all the great things that city life had to offer. So, with Manhattan, he was giving back to the city he loved so much. The success of Annie Hall changed Alan's life. If there was any doubts that Alan was going to make directing his full-time job, Annie Hall cast that aside. He wouldn't do other acting jobs. But instead, concentrate on his own material. It proved that his contract with United Artists, where he got full creative control, was worth it, and Alan was free to make all his films in New York and not have to go more than a couple of hours from his house. Alan wouldn't shoot outside New York or New Jersey for another 15 years. There are a few places where the film starts. Gordon Willis, who had worked with Alan as a cinematographer for the last two years, loved black and white cinematography. And the two men would talk about their favorite widescreen black and white films and how they were often epics, tanks and armies and that sort of thing. That widescreen meant that talking heads and people seemed minimized, and more was made of the scenery. But maybe it would be interesting to do a small romantic human drama in black and white widescreen, and use New York as the scenery. Then there's the music. Alan was listening to an album of George Gershwin recordings, and it inspired a feeling in him. In the music, Alan could see the film—a black and white widescreen New York story, with orchestral versions of Gershwin recordings as the soundtrack. Although it sounds like just how much Gershwin would be used was adjusted later, but we'll get to that. It's sometimes hard to imagine New York on screen without seeing Woody Allen's version of it. The romantic, colorful city of quirky strangers that we now see in everything from When Harry Met Sally to Sex in the City to hundreds more. But in 1979, cinema's view of New York was almost literally mean streets. It was Sidney Lumet's tough struggles in Dog Day Afternoon, released in 1975, or Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver from '76, or the drug-filled sensory overload of '77's Saturday Night Fever. Three of my all-time favorite New York films, not by Allen, are from the 70s, and they all show a city that is dangerous, dirty, and full of crime. They are 1973's Serpico, 1974's The Taking of Pelham 123, and 1979's The Warriors. I love those films, but none of them make me want to move to New York. That image of New York is not how Allen saw it. 
His view was more romantic and probably based on those films he loved as a kid. So Alan had a small bone to pick about how his city was being portrayed and he wanted to show a different side of it. Isn't it beautiful out? Yeah, it's really, really so pretty when the light starts to come up. I know, I love it. Boy, this is really a great city. I don't care what anybody says. It's just really a knockout, you know, it's... I think it's important to note this different approach for Alan. Alan was an acclaimed writer, and directing came second. He was always full of story ideas, but was still working out how to make his story ideas into cinema. In some ways, the filmmaking came second to being a screenwriter. But Alan was improving as a filmmaker. He went from shooting so fast that he was weeks under budget in Take the Money and Run, to waiting hours for the moon to be right in Sleeper. By Annie Hall and Interiors, he was reshooting and re-editing at great expense until he got it right. For Manhattan, he had the vision of the film first, and then he wrote a script that would suit the film that was starting to form in his head. He would do more of this later, like when he decided to make a film in Barcelona and wrote a new script about that city. But this was the first time when this writer-director started a film as a director first, a writer second. Not that there's anything second-rate about the story. Alan crafted a tale that took in all of New York, but had something more complicated to say. Alan was interested in exploring complex characters, complex relationships, and deeper issues. He wanted to talk about society, and he used the word decline a lot in interviews. He wanted to say something about the life and lifestyle he was living, and the world as he saw it. And he put his values into the film, discussing what he thought about art, life, love, and luck. It's a deeply personal work and Alan put himself in the centre, playing Isaac. Isaac's journey starts when he quits his job simply because he doesn't feel like his work is meaningful. His issues are all existential. He doesn't have a bad job and his colleagues think he's crazy for quitting his job. But his wishy-washy desire to do something better with his life is the incident that sets off the film, after we've done some character establishment. No one knocks on Isaac's door and says he has to go on some sort of hero's quest. This is an internal longging. It's worse than that, insightful. It's not funny. There's not a, there's not a legitimate way than that. Where do you see things funny? Look at the audience. You're going by audience reaction? It's an audience that's raised on television. Their, their standards have been systematically lowered over the years. You know, these guys sit in front of their sets and the, the gamma rays eat the white shells of their brains out. You know, I quit. Isaac is dissatisfied with his professional life, but his romantic life is also complicated. There are three women in his life. He has a teenage girlfriend who he likes, but he disregards it as a fling that will never last. Along comes Mary, a woman who is pretentious and intellectual, but by romantic comedy meet cute rules, the two actually warm to each other. And there's also his ex-wife, who hates him and is writing a book about their relationship. Alan chooses to be with Mary, breaking Tracy's heart, but Mary has been having an affair with Isaac's friend Yale. More than that, they've been living dishonestly and can't get past it. It climaxes in the wonderful scene in the empty classroom where Alan lays it all out. Well, I'm not a saint, okay. But, you, but you're too easy on yourself. Don't you see that? You know, you, you, that's your problem. That's your whole problem. You, you rationalize everything. You're not honest with yourself. You talk about you want to you write a book, but, but in the end, you'd rather buy the Porsche, you know? Or you, you cheat a little bit on Emily and you play around the truth a little with me. And, and then the next thing you know, you're in front of a Senate committee and you're naming names. You're informing on your friends. You are so self-righteous, you know? I mean, we're just... People, we're just human beings, you know? You think you're God. I, I gotta model myself after someone. His speech brings together so many things that Alan has been trying to say in the film. There's a better life out there, and people aren't living it. That society is awashed with bullshit. Isaac is exasperated by the apparent moral decay. Alan attacks television, novelizations, celebrity gossip, and much more. Why are people so forgiving about lying to others? Even the wonderful one-liner about Nazis, often used in other contexts, shows Isaac's frustration. Why don't we beat up Nazis with bats? Why is everyone just standing around being okay when the world is going to shit? Has anybody read that Nazis are gonna march in New Jersey, you know? I read this in the newspaper. We should go down there, get some guys together, you know, get some bricks and baseball bats and really explain things to them. There is this devastating satirical piece on that on the op-ed page of the Times. It is devastating. Well, a satirical piece in the Times is one thing, but bricks and baseball bats really gets right to the point. Oh, but really, biting satire is always better than physical force. 
think you know, physical force is always better with Nazis than because it's hard to satirize a guy with shiny boots. Well, you get emotional, I know, but I think it's important to separate Woody Allen from Isaac. Because what Alan's trying to say is different from what he has the character of Isaac say. Because Isaac is high-minded and kind of full of himself. Isaac is described by his ex-wife in her book, and she describes him as a complainer about life and offers no solutions. But Alan shows Isaac and the audience that there is some hope. It comes in the final few moments of the film. First, there's that celebrated list he makes of things that makes life worth living. Cezanne's apples and pears, and the crab at a Chinese restaurant. Well, it has to be optimistic. Well, all right, why is life worth living? That's a very good question. Um, well, there are certain things, I, I guess, that make it worthwhile. Uh, like what? Okay. Um, for me, uh, ooh, I would say, what, Groucho Marx, to, to name one thing. Uh, um, and... Willie Mays and um, the second movement of the Jupiter Symphony and um, Louis Armstrong, recording of Potato Head Blues, um, Swedish movies, naturally, Sentimental Education by Flaubert, uh, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, um, those incredible apples and pears by Cezanne. The Crabs at Sam Woe's, um, Tracy's Face. <laughs> also on the list, he realises, is Tracy. And he rushes after her, but she's pretty much off to London. It's funny watching that scene now because she's going for six months. But in the era without internet, six months is an eternity. But she actually has Isaac's number and she leaves him with some advice. I can only assume Alan agrees because he leaves it as the last line of the film. It's the words that echo in your head as you leave the theatre. And that line is that Isaac needs to have faith in people. Isaac doesn't care for other people, but he cares for Tracy. And so he's stuck because the person he cares about wants him to care. And so the film ends with Isaac's smile. It's a smile where you see his cynicism crumble. Maybe just for a moment. But you get the feeling that Isaac will try to have more faith in people. And then we fade to black. Six months isn't so long. Everybody gets corrupted. Look, you have to have a little faith in people. The theme that shines through the film for me is importance. Throughout the film, Isaac is trying to focus his life on what is important, living a better life, quitting the job he hates. But those aren't important things and it ends up being a dead end. The important things are smaller and more personal. The film is filled with talk of things being overrated or geniuses or how we will be remembered and what gets remembered. Take Mary's list of the Academy of the Overrated, things that Alan personally treasures, for example. Isaac thinks those things are important but Mary and Yao don't. Even the way that Mary is introduced, she's having an intellectual argument, one that Isaac later teases her about. She's pretentious and represents pretentiousness. <laughs> we were downstairs at the Castelli Gallery, we saw the photography exhibition. Incredible, oh, absolutely incredible. Really, really you like that? <sighs> the, the photographs downstairs yes, at the Castelli Gallery? Great, absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Did huh. you? No, I, I really felt it was very derivative. To me, it looked like it was straight out of Diane Arbus, but it had none of the wit. Really? You know, we didn't like him as much as the, the plexiglass sculpture, that I will admit. I mean, really, you like the plexiglass, huh? You didn't like the plexiglass sculpture either? Oh, that's interesting. No, it, I don't know. The, it was a hell of a lot better than that, that steel cube. Did you see the steel oh, cube? Yeah, that was so <laughs> Now, that was brilliant to me, absolutely brilliant. The steel cube was yes. brilliant? It, to me, it was, it was very textural, you know what I mean? It was perfectly integrated and it had a, a, a marvellous kind of negative capability. The rest of the stuff downstairs was bullshit. It contrasts that final list of small things that Isaac makes into his tape recorder. You can imagine some pretentious person saying that Brando and Sinatra are overrated. You just have to look on Twitter. Alan is making points about what we value and what we don't. His puncturing of it culminates in the wonderful scene with Jeremiah. Mary's apparently genius ex. He has been built up over several scenes, 
but he doesn't appear to be a type of genius that we recognize. I was tired of submerging my identity to a very brilliant, dominating man. Mm-hmm. He's a genius. Well, he was a genius, and Helen's a genius, and Dennis is a genius. You know, a lot of geniuses, you know. You should meet some stupid people once in a while. You know, you can learn something. In the end, for Alan, it's all about the things that make you happy. Don't worry about what other people think. People will disappoint you. Institutions will let you down. Life is meaningless and will end. So if you find something or someone who makes it less horrible, then you should cherish it. It's a theme Alan would return to over and over. But he says it beautifully here, because above and beyond what Alan is trying to say, it's also about how he says it. Story, plot and character aside, Alan weaved two important elements through his script. One was his own life, and the other was New York City. There's lots of elements of Alan's life in the story. There's the obvious one where he's the lead and it's contemporary New York. He had two ex-wives, just like Isaac. He wrote for TV and didn't like it. This was the era when Alan was famous and drawing on his life, and people would come out and say various aspects were based on them. They can't all be true, but probably aren't all false either. Isaac also has some interesting differences from Alan. Isaac has a son, and Alan is very much a bachelor at this point. Neither of his ex-wives are like Meryl Streep's character of Jill, and there is no real-life analogy for Mary, who is pretty important for the film. Alan used his life for a base, and God knows how many times we've seen this since, when comedians play a fictionalised version of themselves. Alan using his own life in films is interesting, and I'm sure there are many essays about this, but what makes the film for me is how Alan uses his lifestyle on screen, and that ties in with the New York element. Alan put on screen a snapshot of New York life as he saw it, and loved it. This was New York of casual dining, cinemas and museums, of theatre, therapists and trips to Long Island. Everyone's apartment, big or small, has a huge bookshelf and it's fun to pause to see what the books are. New York isn't filled with gangs on the subway. It's a cosmopolitan city with skyscrapers and busy avenues. Guys, we discussed this. I mean, it's difficult to live in this town without a big income. Yeah, plus I got two alimonies and I got child support and I got, you know, I got to cut down. I'm going to have to give up my apartment. I'm not going to be able to do the tennis lessons. I'm not going to pick the checks up at dinner or, you know, I won't be able to take the the Southampton house. (sighs) You know, oh. Plus, I'll probably have to give my parents less money. You know, this is going to kill my father. He's going to—he's not going to be able to get as good a seat in the synagogue, you know? This is going to be in the back, away from God, far from the action. Several of the locations are personally important to Alan. Again, he's weaving his own life into the film. Elaine's, where we first meet our characters, is where Alan would eat dinner most nights. Isaac takes Tracy to Alan's own favourite pizzeria, John's Pizzeria. And there's favourites of the locals, like the Deli Zabars, or Rizzolo's Bookstore, or Dean and DeLuca. How great it is to have this film that acts as a snapshot of New York like it was in the late 70s. He also didn't try to make a film for people in their 20s. This isn't the place to talk about romantic comedies as a genre, but a lot of rom-coms are made for young women. Alan was making a film for people in their 40s. Alan really added this language to cinema. He said around this point that he wanted to make films for adults who wanted more complex stories. It's a far cry from his own Bananas, and a far cry from, say, Mel Brooks or Martin Scorsese. There is a cosmopolitan film language that Alan invents here and puts in New York. Alan sometimes is hard on himself and he says he doesn't see his influence in modern filmmaking. That's obviously not true. He's been fundamental. And the strongest one, really, is the vision that he puts on screen here actual three-dimensional adults and their interpersonal dramas in a big city. What strikes me about the script is how it's not packed with laughs, although many still regard it as a comedy. Alan has said that a lot of the scenes that were cut were the funniest ones. Of course, there's plenty of memorable laughs. There's good slapstick stuff like the scene in the Central Park Lake where Isaac puts his hand in the water, or the scenes with Isaac and his son, or when Isaac moves into a new flat and the removalists are rough with his stuff. These are updates on the music-only comedy sequences he did earlier in his career that were a nod to silent cinema-era comedians, but they are more subtle and elicit a wry smile rather than a big laugh. Same with the one-liners. They're good, but they are no longer the focus of the script. Alan's aim isn't to make you laugh on every page. He wants to entertain you and will throw in laughs as needed. But when he does, he's still a comedy master. You know, you've got a good sense of humor. You hey, actually do. Hey, thanks, thanks. <laughs> I don't need you to tell me that. You know, no. I've been, yeah, no, I've been making good money off it. But Alan isn't relying on laughs. He's filled the film with moments that you remember that aren't necessarily funny. 
The most famous scenes in the film aren't the funniest ones. The late night walk to the park bench, the carriage ride in Central Park, that final run through the streets of New York City. There's a romance and a joy. There are also sad scenes, like Isaac breaking up with a crying Tracy, or Mary confessing to Isaac that she's still in love with Yale, or when Mary and Yale break up at a cafe in a lovely bit of realist drama. There's no one-liners, just characters we kind of like going through conflict. Alan even has a bit of swearing in some scenes, which helped push the film into an R rating. Point is, is that, uh, I don't know, I'm all fucked up. I'm just, shit. The point is, what the hell am I doing in this relationship anyway? My phone never stops ringing. I could go to bed with the entire faculty of MIT if I wanted to. It's just, I don't know, I'm wasting myself on a married man, so I don't know. Listen, I think I'd better go now. I think it's, I, I just want you to have this. I... I got these tickets to see Rand Paul tonight. Here, oh, you can Mary, take them. Listen, this is very hard on me, no, too. No, please, you know? why don't you just take them and go with your wife? Mary, come on, you love Rand Paul. I'm... Call somebody up. Take Isaac. Yeah, fuck off, you. Alan's also not relying on trickery. The fourth wall breaking Annie Hall stuff is gone. There's no flashbacks or cartoon sequences. It's a straight story, and Alan gets to the point. Alan has turned his screenwriting tricks into skill. Like the other breakup, when Mary tells Isaac she's still in love with Yale. In a film full of quickfire dialogue, Alan slows the pace and provides dramatic contrast. What's the matter? Hey, what? Is there something wrong? What is it? I think I'm still in love with Yale. What? You... Are you kidding? You are? Despite the simple structure, Alan's also getting more sophisticated with his writing. Alan was writing a semi-serious novel around this time, and you can see that writerliness come through. And it's in the details. For example, I love how Emily says to Isaac near the end of the film that she is mad at him for introducing Isaac to Mary. We put it together immediately as an audience that it was another lie that Yao told her. It's that Hitchcock thing of letting the audience do the work and how rewarding that is for us. And Isaac doesn't correct her. And that says so much about his character. And Alan sets it up right from the beginning when Yao says he's only ever cheated on her in very minor ways. It's amazing. I'm stunned because of all the people that I know, I always... Thought for sure that you and Emily had one of the best marriages. We do, you know. I mean, I love her. Really, but you're seeing, but you. I know it. I know. But I just, I mean, in all the years that we've been married, what I've had, what one or two very minor things with other women. I mean, I mean, very minor things, and I hate the whole idea that I hate myself when I'm doing this sort of thing. The characters are full of contradictions and detail. Mary is hateable when we meet her being all pretentious, but we later see a side of her and she admits it's from her own insecurities. We feel for her and we like her enough that we are disappointed when she goes back to Yale. Tracy is young, but mature enough to move to London on her own. And Isaac is vain enough to smoke just to look cool and ran over his ex-wife's lover. Not exactly an American hero. I also love that very rightly parallel where Isaac is writing a book about New York, which we kind of see played out in the film. And then I love how it all works together. Like how the streets of Manhattan play a huge role in Isaac's final run to Tracy. It's hard to sum up this story sometimes. What happens to Isaac is small, and the whole story runs just a few days. No one dies, no magical rings are returned, no superhero teams are formed. But the story being small doesn't mean it's not important in itself. And again, Alan is playing around with what is important by putting this funny little drama on screen. And it helps that he put this funny little drama in a frame fit for a masterpiece. I'm mad because I don't like that pseudo-intellectual garbage that you should put there. Alan and Willis thought it would be interesting to use that grand cinematography on Alan's little urban tale. Again, it would be about contrast. Take the scene of Yale at a phone booth asking Mary to see him again. Willis and Alan shoot Michael Murphy in the far right of the screen. 80% of the shot is just a huge shot of Park Avenue in all its busy glory. Basically, Alan and Willis are using the tricks of shooting epic landscapes and applying it to New York. And it's not just the exteriors. There are dozens of shots where the characters that are talking are barely in frame. 
On the other side of that Yao phone call is Mary on the edge of the screen and most of the frame is just a wall. Or the way that Mary is introduced almost off screen before she squeezes into frame. What is important is the scenery. The best illustration of this is the late night dog walk. It's shot in black and white so it's timeless. It's widescreen so you're immersed in the city and the orchestra plays behind them. All they are doing is sitting on a park bench but it's been elevated to iconic status and one of the most memorable single shots in American cinema. The scene of Isaac and Mary sitting in silhouette watching the 59th Street Bridge actually took a bit of planning. It was shot in the very early morning as dark became light. The city kept the lights on for the shot and probably every day there is at least one confused tourist trying to work out where the bench is because there is no bench there. The production brought it with them. Apparently the city considered putting the bench there but it would only be flooded with tourists. I imagine like London's Abbey Road zebra crossing. Black and white was still a viable option in the late 70s, although colour films were definitely taking over. The choice was a novelty and Alan had to pay extra for the lab to develop black and white film. Alan also had the studio title cards play out in black and white, further reducing colour for the audience. The black and white also makes a story point. Alan says it himself that he sees the city in black and white, Along with the music, which we will talk about, it gives the film a sense of being out of time. Alan is talking about very contemporary ideas using the palette of another era. It creates this tension for the audience of thinking about the past and the present. Gordon Willis's nickname is the Prince of Darkness, and in black and white, that darkness is just pitch black. The scene at the planetarium has the characters in silhouettes. A scene with Isaac and Tracy at Isaac's place where they plan their next day is covered in darkness. And again, that iconic scene at the 59th Street Bridge or the Central Park carriage ride, it's all very dark. So corny. I, you know, I can't believe this. Is this what you wanted to do? You know, this was your one wish? I don't think it's corny. I think it's fun. I think it's Well, great. it is fun, but I mean, I did this when I was a kid, you know? I... Yeah, well, I've never done it. I think it's great. <laughs> on my prom night, I went around this park five times, six times, you know, to the left. If I, if I had been with a girl, this would have been an incredible experience. <laughs> for me, this is Gordon Willis's best work. He got more praise for Zelig, the film he did with Alan in 1983, which was more showy and technically interesting. But in terms of using the camera to tell story or evoke a feeling, this is his best work. Better than The Godfather or anything else Willis did. There's that awful cliche about how New York City is almost its own character in some films. I'll avoid that cliche, thank you, but Alan puts so much New York in the film's production. I love the sound design, which is on the streets, which is always full of traffic and car horns, and people have to talk loudly. People are noticeably not shouting when they go into interior scenes. I love how places and streets are just busy. There's a scene with Isaac waiting outside Tracy's school. The camera doesn't move and the sound design is just street noise, probably foley work and no music. People walk back and forth. We never hear the characters talk and we move on. This is just one of many interesting directing ideas. There is sophistication in the camera work of every shot. I love the scene where we follow a car with Yal and Emily and we hear their voiceover. And then later we are just in traffic with Isaac and Mary being sweet to each other. You look so beautiful I can hardly keep my eyes on the meter. <laughs> it's 14 <laughs> bucks to go back. It's not a very important scene, but there's a moment where we see the TV show that Isaac is working on. We see it from the control room and the action takes place in a small part of the screen and we can barely make out anything. Most of the scene is shadows of camera and lighting equipment. It's a very strange shot decision, but Alan and Willis were making even small scenes like this more interesting than it had to be. It all builds up to the running scene. Manhattan is a place of no taxis, busy streets, and you can walk most places if you wanted. Once again, we see the busy avenues full of everyday people and traffic everywhere. It's not just Isaac's last chance to see Tracy. It's our last chance to see Manhattan in this film. The film cements Alan as a leading man, a title he would relinquish soon enough. He does a really good job. He holds the screen without relying on being funny. In comedy, it's easy for Alan to write himself up and write others down for the sake of laughs. Here, he's kind of being made fun of. 
Still, he can be charming, as he often is, on various date scenes. And he's still a solid comic performer. It's not exactly a stretch, either. You can't begrudge anyone for confusing Isaac with Alan. I, uh, I finally had an orgasm, and my doctor told me it was the wrong kind. Did you have the wrong kind? Really? I've never had the wrong kind, ever, ever. My worst one was right What's on the money. This would be Alan's last film with Diane Keaton for almost 15 years, not including a small cameo in Radio Days. Her casting is a good red herring. We expect Alan and Keaton to end up together, like they had in four other films. She also makes Mary likeable just by being, you know, Diane Keaton. But no, not only do they not end up together, this is the breakup of a wonderful screen pairing. If you watch the scene of Mary, Yale, Isaac and Tracy walking after the museum and talking about the Academy of the Overrated, you see Keaton and Michael Murphy almost break just before the scene cuts. The film might not have that Alan Keaton comic chemistry on screen, but I'm sure they had a lot of fun together on set. The two remained close friends, but Keaton had worried that she would be stuck in Alan's shadow and pegged as only being able to do comedy. Keaton is definitely less funny in the role of Mary and at times is quite unlikable. She would focus on several serious roles after this. You're so the opposite. I mean, you write that absolutely fabulous television show. It's brilliantly funny. And his view is so Scandinavian. It's bleak. My God. I mean, all that Kierkegaard, right? Real adolescent, you know, fashionable pessimism. I mean, the silence. God's silence. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, I loved it when I was at Radcliffe, but I mean, all right, you outgrow it. You absolutely outgrow it. Uh, I think I don't know him anymore. No, 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 no. Don't you see? Don't you guys see that it is the dignifying of one's own psychological and sexual hang-ups by attaching them to these grandiose philosophical issues. That's what it is. Here we are. Uh, listen, I, it was very nice meeting you. It was, it was a pleasure and a sincere sensation, but we have to go because oh. we got to get some, we got to do some shopping. Hey, I forgot listen. about it. Hey, listen, I don't even want to have this conversation. I mean, really, I mean, I'm just from Philadelphia. You know, I mean, we believe in God, so, uh, okay? What the hell does it's... that mean? What is it? What does she mean? What do you mean by that? You're, well, I'm from uh, Philadelphia, I believe in God. What, 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 <laughs> does this make any sense to you at all? This was the only time Meryl Streep and Woody Allen worked together on a film, but the two were friends through Diane Keaton. She was just starting out. This was her third film. She's fine in her role here, but in the same year she starred in Kramer vs. Kramer, which took out the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her work. How's Willie? Hi. Well, give me some details. What do you mean fine? I mean, does he play baseball? Does he wear dresses? What? He doesn't wear dresses. You find out all the details when it's your turn to see him. Hey, don't write this book. It's a humiliating experience. It's an honest account of our breakup. Jesus, everybody that knows us is going to know everything. Look at you. You're so threatened. Hey, I'm not threatened because I, of the two of us, I was not the immoral, psychotic, promiscuous one. I hope I didn't leave out anything. This was the start of Mariel Hemingway's film career as well, although she already had a Golden Globe nomination for her work in Lipstick. It makes her the first top-billed actor to work with Alan, who already had a major award. I'm sure Alan would have been aware that she's the granddaughter of writer Ernest Hemingway. Alan was a big fan of her grandfather, and even wrote him as a character in Midnight in Paris. Hemingway won plaudits for her role, but unfortunately, Meryl Streep's Kramer vs. Kramer win meant that Hemingway missed out on an Oscar. Much was made of Hemingway's age, and there's a lot of revisionism. Poor Hemingway has to constantly reclarify her comments because she can't even tell an anecdote about her work on Manhattan without it being taken the wrong way. For example, she was the only cast member to promote the film in France and at the Cannes Film Festival, and she talked about how overwhelming it was, which led to people accusing Alan of not providing enough duty of care towards her. It would have been overwhelming for people three times her age. Either way, Hemingway and Alan also remained close friends. Alan helped her when she was in need, and when she wanted to do films again, Alan found a role for her immediately in Deconstructing Harry. You should think of me sort of as a detour on the highway of life. So get dressed, because I think you got to get out of here. Do you want me to stay over? I, I don't want you to get in the habit, you know, because the first thing you know, you stay over one night, and then two nights, and then, you know, then you're, you're living there. Yeah, that doesn't sound No, that's no, not such a great idea. You won't like it, believe me. I'm tough to get along with. Tomorrow, we'll go to the Bleecker Street Cinema, and I'll show you the Veronica Lake movie, okay? Oh, okay. Veronica Lake's a pin-up with the red hair? No, that's Rita Hayworth. We, do we have to go over this all the time? Rita who? Rita Hayworth. Are you joking with me? I, I never know when you Of course I'm joking. You think I'm unaware of any event pre-Paul McCartney? Michael Murphy doesn't get enough praise as Yale. He is the character in the film with the most shades of grey. 
He's a bit of a prick who impulsively buys fast cars and has affairs, but we are not supposed to hate him. In fact, we're supposed to see his point at times when he argues with Isaac that he's only human. It's not easy to make Yao likeable, but Murphy's screen presence is warm and smiling. He's a good foil for Alan's characters, as he seems unflappable even when he's morally in the wrong. He's usually not included in the conversation about great American character actors, but he's been in so many great films from Nashville to The Front to The Year of Living Dangerously and more. He's casual and natural and deserves more praise. What are you telling me? That you, 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 you're going to leave Emily, is this true, and, and run away with the, the, the winner of the Zelda Fitzgerald Emotional Maturity Award? Look, I love her. I've always oh, loved her. What kind of crazy friend are you? I'm a good friend. I introduced the two of you, remember? Why? What was the point? I don't understand that. Because I thought you liked her. Yeah, I do like her. Now we both like her. Yeah, well, I liked her first. I liked her first? What are you, what are you six years old? On the other hand, a character actor who is nothing but praised is Wallace Shawn, who makes his film debut here. Shawn was a playwright who had worked a lot with director Andre Gregory, but his distinctive mannerisms put him on stage and he starred in his own plays, which were often very explicit and controversial. His work came across the desk of Alan's casting director, Juliet Taylor, who suggested him for the role of Jeremiah in Manhattan. He gets one scene and nails it and is out. We've been building up to this character and suddenly here he is and it's Wallace Shawn. After his first take, Alan told him that he was great, but now we have the comedic take. Let's do a more natural one. Funny thing was, that was his natural one. It's the first of six times that Sean would work with Alan. This is... Oh my God, Jeremiah. Well, Hi. Um, yeah, Jeremiah, this is my friend, uh, Isaac Davis. Hi. Hi. Glad to meet you. Hi. Oh my God, this is so incredible. I, it's incredible, I'm just I know. In town for a few days. It's yeah. a kind of a symposium on semantics. Well, and you're just looking so great. I just, uh... You, you're so thin. You lost a lot of weight, didn't well, you? Well, uh, I have an exercise machine. Well, you really look good. Really good. The only other build actor is Anne Byrne. This was only her third time in a film and her only major role. She was married to Dustin Hoffman at the time, in the same year that he was starring in the film Kramer vs. Kramer, you know, which starred Meryl Streep. She did one more film before she and Hoffman divorced in 1980 and then never acted again. You know, I was a little pissed off at you. I figured if you hadn't introduced Mary to Yale, this might never have happened. Production started in July in 1978 and Alan and his crew came back for several reshoots. This was just Alan's method and reshoots are booked into the budget. Alan liked to assemble versions of the film and then go back and re-edit again. Editing was as much a part of the storytelling as screenwriting. And being shot in Alan's home of New York, and with a set regular crew all living there, it was easy to just go and shoot something when they thought of it. Most of the crew had been with Alan since Annie Hall. The celebrated opening montage was found in the edit. Isaac mentions his book in the finished film, but apparently there was a lot more scenes about it, including one where he talks about what's in the book. Originally, the film just opened at Elaine's. Technically new to Alan's team for this film is Susan E. Morse in the role of editor. She had been an assistant editor for Alan, working under Ralph Rosenblum since Annie Hall. But Rosenblum left and Alan decided to promote Morse. One of her ideas was a montage of New York scenes with some unused dialogue from Isaac talking about his book. This was after the film was shot. Alan loved the idea. The team went out and recorded more footage, including some from Alan's own balcony. Alan wrote and recorded a new monologue, and he put it right at the front of the film. And of course, he added the music, that wonderful version of Rhapsody in Blue. So let's talk about that music. Gershwin was an inspiration, but we also know that Alan looked at other music ideas before settling on Gershwin in post-production. Maybe it was just a question of how much music to use, because Alan was coming off two films with almost no score. Annie Hall in 77 and Interiors in 78. Manhattan was a massive U-turn. Alan didn't just put music in the film, he made it an integral part and a big selling point. Alan filled the film with music, and it wasn't just a bit of jazz. 
The magnificent arrangements of George Gershwin's songbook was a mix of new recordings from the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and an existing recording by the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. The Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra recording was what Alan was listening to when he realised he wanted to use Gershwin music in the film. And instead of re-recording those performances, Alan paid the orchestra the fee for a recording date and then licensed the recordings. But the more celebrated part of the soundtrack was the new recordings from the New York Philharmonic. Alan commissioned the recordings and the sessions took place at the Avery Fisher Hall. Alan and Diane Keaton watched the recordings in the middle of a huge storm. Concert pianist Gary Grafman actually missed the session because of the rain. Alan had never spent this much time or expense on a soundtrack before, or since, and the lush orchestra was in stark contrast to the filmmaking. This was the kind of score that was reserved for mega epics like Gone with the Wind. This isn't how you score a small urban story about a couple of relationships. Of course, the New York Sessions produced that version of Rhapsody in Blue that we hear in the film. It feels a bit silly to talk about some movie when I need to talk about Rhapsody in Blue. I mean, it's Rhapsody in Blue. Certainly one of the greatest musical compositions of the 20th century, and possibly the only composition to hold a candle to the all-time greats like Mozart or Beethoven. At some point in the future, Woody Allen and Manhattan will only be remembered as a footnote to Rhapsody in Blue. The use of that piece of music is both appropriate and deliberately jarring. It's appropriate because it's so American and so New York. Gershwin wanted to represent the sounds of the rattling trains and the traffic of a big melting pot city. It's a mix of classical and jazz, of upper and lower class, of penthouse and pavement, which is so New York. It's perfect for this film, which takes us from tuxedos in the sculptured garden of the Museum of Modern Art to John's Pizzeria in the village. But it is jarring because it is once again of another time. Isaac talks about old-fashioned values as old-fashioned music plays. But beyond Rhapsody in Blue, there are so many other wonderful music cues. I love the lush romance of Someone to Watch Over Me when Mary and Isaac go on their late-night walk. And then there's He Loves and She Loves, which is perfect to soundtrack the carriage ride that Isaac takes with Tracy. Or my favourite musical moment after Rhapsody in Blue. Isaac has his run on the streets of New York to strike up the band, this frantic piece that reflects the busy streets. But he arrives, and the music stops, and he sees Tracy. The strings swirl and come on, and on comes, but not for me. That stop, that breather, that leads into that romantic piece of music is just wonderful. Alan, being a musician, gets the rhythm of music, and he really nails it here. Manhattan was released on the 25th of April 1979. It was his seventh film with United Artists, and it almost didn't come out at all. Alan hated the film. When he looked at the finished product, it wasn't close to what he set out to make. He hated it so much that he asked the studio, United Artists, to not release the picture. Alan would make a new film for them for free instead. United Artists said no, and I imagine part of that no is how well they understood Alan and his process. Alan needs a bit of guiding sometimes. I have no idea if Alan had any specific concerns. He just said he wasn't happy with it. But it is sort of interesting to imagine a world where this entire film was shelved. It would be the most legendary unreleased film of all time. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to you is you're going to learn something about yourself, right? The film cemented Alan's reputation. Annie Hall was still making waves, especially internationally. Interiors, the follow-up to Annie Hall, was quietly under the radar. For many people, the first time they heard about Woody Allen after Annie Hall was with Manhattan, especially outside the US. This was Allen's first film to play at the Cannes Film Festival, and Allen found himself revered in European film circles. After Manhattan, he was seen as the most European-friendly of American directors. European audiences recognised what Allen was trying to do and related to his sensibility of human drama over guns and action. His journey of being bigger in Europe than America starts with this film. Still, in the US it made just over 40 million in the 1979 money. Adjusted for inflation, this is Alan's second most successful film after Annie Hall. It didn't exactly sweep the awards, but it got more than its fair share. It won the best foreign film awards in Denmark, France, Germany, Spain, and nominated for many others. It was lauded in several critic circle awards, and it won the BAFTA for best film. 
But at the Academy Awards, it was Kramer vs. Kramer that swept Best Picture, Best Director, Male Actor, and more. Not that it matters because Alan doesn't care about awards, and would care even less going forward. The real reward was that the success of this film, which proved that he could repeat the success of Annie Hall, bought Alan the ability to do what he wanted for decades to come. You can see Alan pulling away from the mainstream here. There's that old filmmaking adage that you make one for audiences and one for yourself. And Alan could give less crap about making one for audiences from this point on. He would make entertaining films, sure, but only on his terms. In his next several films to come, he would become more esoteric and use the film language of Bergman and Fellini and De Sica and many more. He would make films for cinephiles and he would look at more human and adult concerns. This is where Woody Allen films really become great, but they are also no longer for everyone anymore. This is my favourite film of all time. Sure, it's a position that's easy to defend given how flawlessly it's made, how the visuals and the music melt effortlessly with the script and the acting. Some of America's cinema's greatest shots, greatest music cues and greatest one-liners can be found in this film. But that's not really why this is my favourite film. It comes back to what this film is trying to say about life and why it's worth living. It's the complex view of life, hope and art. I hope I'm not as bad as Isaac with this and I don't yell at my friends about it, but there's a lot to be said about life here that I agree with. I agree that art is a big part of what makes life worth living and institutions can kind of be nonsense. I think that people trying to one-up each other about how much they know and their taste is silly and you like what you like and you should enjoy it, haters be damned. The heart wants what the heart wants and it makes no sense so don't fight it. And that you look at the sea of reality TV and social media and it's all bullshit and it's worth making some sacrifices to get away from it. And I try to have some faith in people despite it all. Those are just some of the things I've learnt from this film and it informs more of my everyday life than any other film I can think of. Trying to live a good life, making an effort to keep the bullshit away, love the things that I love and ignoring the haters. I can go on and on about Woody Allen, but I can barely describe how much I love this film. It's the reason I love films, and it's the reason I'm the person that I am. Well, you just can't live the way you do, you know? It's all so perfect. Just, what are future generations gonna say about us? My God, you know, someday we're gonna, we're gonna be like him. I mean, you know, he was probably one of the beautiful people. He was probably dancing and playing tennis and everything, and, and, and now look, this is what happens to us. You know, it's very important to have, to have some kind of personal integrity. You know, I'll, I'll be hanging in a classroom one day, and, and I wanna make sure when I thin out that I'm well thought of. And look, it's not just me. This is an important film for the history of American cinema. More than Annie Hall, this film invents that talky New York film. A whole independent film movement was born of this film. The way it seems is always New Yorkers just talking on the streets making films about their lives. Alan set that standard as he did that same thing too. And really, his budget isn't much more than what Noah Baumbach, Whit Stillman, Lena Dunham, etc. do now. And those directors are not so much the children of Woody Allen, but the children of this particular film. I see parodies of it all the time. On YouTube are several Manhattan-like opening sequences other people have done for their own cities. But also it's been referenced in Family Guy, Futurama, Tiny Tunes, the science series Cosmos, the UK sitcom Spaced, Glee, and lots of romantic comedy films like Trainwreck with Amy Schumer, and so much more. This is also important to Woody Allen's personal history. He's managed to create a vision of filmmaking and wrote a story to fit, with his team helping him He's finally become a master of cinematography, working with actors, working with music, editing, production design, and so much more. Here, with this film, Woody Allen finally becomes a great director. Do you have a good time with me? Aren't I load of laughs and fun, can't yes. you tell from this evening? So, and that's it, and then, you know, when we have, we have... Here's some fun facts about Manhattan. The original cast was amazing, of course. Still. In 2012, director Jason Reitman put together a live read. That was a bunch of actors who would do a script read through in front of a live audience. And what a cast. British comedian and director Stephen Merchant was an inspired choice for Isaac. Olivia Munn played Mary. And also in the cast was Shailene Woodley, Fred Savage and Jason Mansukis. The night was deliberately not filmed. But it says so much that the script, separated from the score and the city and the visuals, was worthy of a celebration. In 2017, Manhattan got a small theatrical run in 4K and played a couple of film festivals. That's the nice thing about shooting on film, 
it's not impossible to improve the resolution and is hopefully a home release at some point. No other Woody Allen film deserves the higher resolution as much as this one. Allen worked out a lot of his tropes in this film, but he still hasn't worked out his title card sequence. Something like his title card sequence plays at the end of the film, with that Windsor text in white over black, but it's not the same. The name of the film, Manhattan, appears on screen as part of the street sign in the opening montage. And finally, Chinese restaurant Sam Wu is no longer there, having closed sometime in the mid-80s. But like Elaine's or John's Pizzeria, people used to see Alan there. A story in a 2011 New Yorker piece described seeing Alan arriving and the staff giving him a table at the back. I assumed he ordered the crab. Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of Manhattan? Is it still a masterpiece? I mean, the answer is yes, it's definitely still a masterpiece. But still, let me know your thoughts on how this is still a masterpiece at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. If you get to this point, you know that this is where I talk about one of the many ways that you can support this podcast. As this goes along with one of Alan's biggest films, I assume a lot of people will listen to it. So I'm going to talk about one of the most important ways to support me, and that's simply spreading the word. Look, it sounds simple, but it's the main reason why I'm doing this. I've been around long enough to see lots of Woody Allen websites come and go, and lots of interviews and stories fall off the web. Time is no one's friend. Like Sandy Bates might get sad about, Ozymandias Melancholia. Works die. And Woody Allen's works are more vulnerable than most for so many reasons. Many of his films are not available legally at all. Things fall out of print and country rights are so complicated. So along with the books that I've written, I really want these podcasts to last. And the best way to do it is to make an impact and get more people to listen to them. Get people talking about the films. The other thing that helps a little is reviews. Five-star reviews help with getting this podcast high in search results. But really, there aren't that many Woody Allen podcasts to compete with. But review it anyway help spread the word. But the more people listen, the more platforms like iTunes and other podcast platforms know that this is a successful podcast and it should be recommended more. It's really simple, but it really works. There's other ways to support this podcast and website more directly like Patreon, buy me a coffee, buying books or artwork. Links to all that stuff is in the description. And hey, by the time you hear this, it'll just be a couple of days before Alan releases a new book. It's called Zero Gravity and I'll put all the links up on the website. That's it for this week. Follow me on social media everywhere on at Woody Allen Pages. There's also the website, of course, WoodyAllenPages.com. Next week, a film that Allen declared was a failure because it was all his fault. Thanks for listening. You don't need a male. I mean, two mothers are absolutely fine. Really? Because fine. I always feel very few people survive one mother. Mm.